This is the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria, session number 48. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Hey everyone, welcome to session 48 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. I am joined today by Dan Law of the Liberty Insurance Company, and we're going to talk about insurance. Yay! So um, before you start looking for another podcast to listen to, or before you start typing an angry email to me saying, why are you having you know this on instead of something about ethics or functional assessment or act or whatever, um, uh, let me explain here for a minute. Um, this episode was something that was suggested to me to consider. Uh, I threw it out to some groups on social media, particularly the ABA Business Builders Group. Uh, and the response was pretty overwhelming. This is a topic that people are pretty interested in. And I'm going to be honest with you, I found it oddly fascinating myself. And so we get into that uh, a little bit in this podcast. Uh, Dan brings a wealth of knowledge in the area of risk management. He has uh, been supporting ABA practitioners for several years now, and he's one of the few insurance uh, providers out there who actually understands what we do. Um, some of the feedback I got in the ABA Business Builders Group uh, were from people who were frustrated because when they got, went to buy workers' comp and things like that, their brokers had no idea how to classify an ABA-based business. So, um, again, I think you'll find this interesting, even if you're not in the position in your organization to be purchasing these things. We talk about risk management in general and some of the crazy things that he's seen happen out there, and I think it'll just give you some additional awareness if you're in a home or you're out in the community or if you're in a clinic working directly with individuals. So I think there's something here for everyone. But before we get to that, I do want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Chartlytics. Uh, Yes, it's our old friend Chartlytics. What do they do? Well, they do a bunch of different things. They're kind of a tech company. They're a consultation company, and they are an education company, and they do all these things rather well. Uh, on the tech side, they have taken all the guesswork out of uh, using the standard acceleration chart. They've automated that process, uh, so it works fairly seamlessly. Uh, on the education side, they are doing all sorts of things. They're doing workshops all around the country and even some in Canada uh, on using precision teaching to accelerate your ABA practice. And uh, they're a consultation company. They work directly with agencies um, all over the place. So um, they just started the ambassador program, which I'm enrolled in. Uh, we had a meeting earlier this week. Uh, it's, a, it's a really fun process that I'm uh, you know, digging into. So I'll be uh, keeping you posted about that. We had our first lesson on pinpointing behaviors. Uh, and uh, so it's a really interesting food for thought. So uh, for more information about Chartlytics, go to chartlytics.com forward slash Matt. And there's a bunch of freebies and discounts and things like that there. So again, check it out at chartlytics.com forward slash Matt. I also want to let you know that in May, I will be uh, co-hosting a a webinar with Adrian Fitzer of the Applied Behavior Analysis Center. And we're going to be featuring session 15 guest, Rich Brooks. And we're going to talk about all things digital marketing. So that will be on May 16th. 
at 6.30 Eastern Time. And if you go to behavioralobservations.com and look for session 48, I'll have that information down at the bottom of the post. Or you can go to abacnj.com and then search for webinars by month. Click on the month of May and you will see my logo right next to Adrian's. So uh, I'm really looking forward to doing this. Uh, so it'll be a live workshop. It'll be great fun. And uh, there'll be two, count them, two type two ethics CEUs for the event. So again, um, I hope this is something that you'll be able to check out, especially if you have an interest in marketing and putting your best foot forward, uh, at least digitally speaking. So Anywho, uh, that's it for opening remarks. So without any further ado, please enjoy this fun conversation with Dan Law. Dan Law, welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, well, I appreciate coming on. This is a uh, we've had non-behavior analysts on the show a couple of times before, but I don't believe we've had anyone with your unique background. So I'm excited to dig into it. So we're we're here to talk about all things coverage, uh, I suppose. And I don't know if that's the right term or not. And I'm sure you'll have ample opportunity to correct me. But uh, this is something that I didn't think folks would be into. I'm going to be honest with you, Dan. Yeah, it's uh, it's not everybody's favorite subject, believe it or not. I get a lot of eye rolls and things like that when we talk to folks, but uh, that's okay. It's the the life I've chosen. <laughs> well, but the the funny thing is, though, is that when I threw this topic out to the uh, ABA Business Builders Facebook group, I got a huge response. I, 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 I you know I was overwhelmed with the interest in this topic, so I was like, all right, well, yeah, this is kind of you know and when you and I had a. a our, 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 uh, a chat a while back talking about this topic, I found myself kind of becoming weirdly fascinated with it. So uh, this has been an unexpected uh, um, thing. So uh, anyway, so you're, uh, you know, uh, work for the Liberty Company Insurance um, Group. And so what, what I want you to do is if you can just start by talking about, you know, how you started working with ABA companies. I know you've been doing it for a little while. Um, and, and things like sure. that. So, um, you know, how'd you get into this particular area of insurance? Yeah, uh, happy to share the stories. I uh, initially started, I've been in the insurance business on the commercial side for, call it 15 years now. It's all I've ever really done professionally. And, you know, early on in my career, operated with a lot of different industries. Uh, I'm in the Bay Area in California, so a lot of high tech clients and things like that. And then just by happenstance, one of my marketing folks sent me out to a business meeting with an ABA agency here in the Bay Area. And uh, I learned, tried to learn about what that person did, of course, but before the meeting and do all my regular meeting prep. And they had about 100 employees at the time, and we knew they had some work comp issues and things, but I didn't know what ABA was. Uh, so go to the meeting, learn more about them, and uh, and you know, find it a, a very interesting and unique field. And then as I'm reviewing their insurance coverage, which is a common practice that we do around here, uh, I noticed that, you know, what they thought they had, they didn't have. Uh, what they thought they were protected for, they weren't really protected for. And, you know, like most agency owners, 
very good on the clinical operations side. Uh, you know, a clinician really running the business and somebody dedicated to helping out children, but uh, maybe not quite as savvy on the on the business ops side of things. Um, you know, we find that trend quite a bit. So that's really how we got into it around here was uh, I came back from that meeting and from the policy review and just said, this is uh, this is somebody that needs some assistance. And then learned more about the business. You know, as I do, I threw myself into education mode and found out everything I could and researched the industry. And uh, we've been off to the races since then. That was about seven or eight years ago now. Cool. Well, I want to dig into that in more detail. But first, I just, uh, you know, from a, uh, you know, professional culture standpoint, you know, it sounds like you work with a bunch of different uh, occupations. And so what is it like working with behavior analysts? I've heard other people say, you know, who support behavior analysts in various roles and say, you guys are a different bunch. You know, <laughs> I'm wondering if you had that type of reaction, of, you know, especially compared to say like, you know, dentists or, you know, a dry cleaner or anything, you know, under the sun. So is, was, is there anything unique about working with folks in my line of work? I will, I will tell you this, and I'm really not pandering. That's not what I do. But they seem to be a lot more kind than we get in other industries. Really? Everybody just seems to have more, more patience uh, and maybe more bandwidth for an open conversation. Um, you know, very interested in learning themselves about what they can do to improve things. That's a, a real common theme we get is everybody – you know, Dan, you tell me how to do it or tell me how it should be done or talk to me about what other people are doing. And they're always happy to share and give their thoughts. And I co connect a lot of agency owners together who, you know, hey, uh, John Doe, I was talking with Jane Doe the other day and she's doing this. Maybe I should connect the two of you and you guys can talk about it a bit. But it's just that kindness and the, the willingness we don't get that in a lot of other industries. So um, me, we so get people that are rushed and angry and upset and things like that. So, okay, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Is like so the opposite is also true. So those people are are, are unkind, uh, uh, impatient, etc. Who who you know? Um, oh, my my account management team um, gets yelled at more than I would like to admit, and I would say most of the time not by our doing. It's somebody that is just, uh, you know, put themselves in a pinch and looking for an outlet of somebody to, to yell at. And that, uh, that tends to fall on us. Sometimes we're an easy target, I guess, in a lot of cases for a lot of other industries. So, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, when you say, Oh, the insurance companies, it's like the boogeyman, right? You know, it's, uh, some, uh, convenient, yeah. uh, convenient whipping, uh, you know, uh, post or whatever. Um, so it tends to be that way. You know, we're not, uh, we're not everybody's favorite. We're something that, you know, you have to have, you hope you don't ever need. And, uh, everybody's, you know, one experience is with an auto insurance claim that wasn't paid out the way they should have thought it should have been or whatnot. So, uh, bad taste in a lot of people's mouth, but hopefully we can change that a bit. All right, cool. So, uh, you, you, uh, teased this a few minutes ago, and so I kind of want to get into it a little, in a little bit more detail. So I, I think one of the common themes that came up in the feedback that I got from folks that I was talking to about this interview is, you know, the, the risks that ABA providers face. So what are the unique risks do, that we face in this field 
that perhaps are that we a we might not know about or, or, or b that are just different than other occupations. Well, you know they're they're varied, and it really depends on the type of agency that we're dealing with. Um, take a uh, a home based provider, for example, and you're sending your employees into largely unknown environments with, in some cases, uh, a little bit of an unpredictable patient. And that is a very unique business to be in. And we do not see it in other industries out there. Uh, I mean, your standard doctor's office doesn't deal with any of that. Your standard daycare provider is really uh, an enclosed environment that they're familiar with and that they can control. Um, you know, you've got a, a, a population of employees that you're sending into the lion's den in some cases. Uh, and so we try to actually focus a lot on that and understanding through the intake process where you're sending your folks so you can train your employees appropriately, make sure they understand the risks before they get to somebody's home uh, or maybe not risks, uh, but, you know, special characteristics of that individual's house. So, you know, those are just a couple of examples. Um, you know, clinic setting is a little bit different. The, the most akin industry we can really find is daycare, but it's not a real solid fit. You know, we borrow a lot of policies and procedures um, from a risk management standpoint from daycare operations to our ABA clinic clients, but it's, it's not the same exposure. It's really different. And insurance carriers have a hard time grasping that when we're talking to them about the risk that people are facing. I see. So um, speaking to that risk, you know, what are specific areas that people should consider coverage for? I, I think before we were recording, you know, I think you had mentioned this, there's, you know, at least a handful of things that people should really consider having in place to protect themselves. Definitely, definitely. So the, the most common one is the professional liability insurance, right? And that's almost the basic just entry level item you need. Any agency needs, any uh, BCBA needs it uh, for credentialing purposes. So that's really the starting point for most of the conversations with folks. You know, that's the number one item you have to have. Mm -hmm. um, as, aside from that, it, what's interesting is it's also the item where we don't see a lot of claims arising from, <laughs> which well, that's good, kind of right? speaks. Yeah, I mean, and it really shouldn't. We 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 don't expect to see them, but it, it really speaks to the cost of that coverage. In some places, you can get it very very inexpensive for pretty significant limits because you know claims don't arise out of that stuff typically in this industry. Um, so, but there are other, there are some other items from a risk management standpoint that we really do want to focus on. Um, one being the auto liability insurance. Uh, you've got a mobile workforce that you're putting out there in the field and understanding the risks that they pose to themselves and the public and how to protect yourselves uh, as the business owner against those risks is, is vitally important to any ABA agency. So, you know, just thinking that, you know, my 22-year-old RBT has their personal liability insurance and that's going to respond is not enough and uh, is not really, that's more of a head in the sand type approach to your risk management than actually going out and purchasing the coverage. But, you know, purchasing the coverage, again, is not terribly expensive for that item, but 
there are other risk management protocols you should have in place too. I see. Um, you know, I think as far as you know, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I know also in certain states, I, I think that's the case here in New Hampshire is that uh, you know, you, certain states you don't have to have insurance. I know this probably sounds crazy in some respects, but uh, yeah, so it's it's probably even more the case if you uh, reside in one of those types of states, right? It, it's uh, very much so, and it's. I mean, even in California, the minimum insurance limits that a lot of people buy out there for their personal auto, uh, call it $15,000 for property damage. That doesn't get you very far in an auto accident or, you know, driving a vehicle into a, <laughs> into a retail store. We had a claim for that where somebody, you know, uh, not paying attention in a neighborhood that they hadn't really been in before, first time meeting with a new client. Uh, trying to find parking, they're confused. It's dark outside, and uh, lo and behold, you know, somehow, some way, they ended up driving into a storefront. Well, their personal liability doesn't go very far in the event of that, and the business is going to be held liable uh, in excess of the personal auto insurance. Wow, that sounds like one of those uh, State Farm commercials or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right, like the Wall right. of Fame of, of claims. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so yeah, other insurance items that people really need to look at are, um, you know, the abuse and molestation coverage, you know, obviously we hope nobody, nobody has any claims arising out of that, but all it really takes is an allegation to put somebody out of business. I mean, everybody's doing their background checks and sexual abuse registry checks and things like that, but that just tells you about what has happened with an employee in the past. It doesn't tell you about their future behavior. Um, so, you know, that the insurance coverage for the abuse and molestation is very important in our eyes. And then the workers compensation. I mean, as anybody knows, who's had an injured worker, um, that can be largely the cost driver for, as far as insurance is concerned for ABA agencies. And as far as workers comp is concerned, what injuries do you see uh, as common in our field? I don't think it'll surprise anybody out there. The headbutts and the biting um, are really the most frequent injuries that we see. Uh, they tend not to be that costly in a lot of cases, although we've had some concussions and other things arise out of it. Um, but those are the two most frequent items. The, the less frequent claims arise from uh, a bending or a twisting or something like that. You know, you've got an RBT getting up off the floor uh, after working with a kid and they, they tweak their back a bit. Those soft tissue injuries are really the ones that'll, that'll drive uh, your claims costs. Those are the ones that get pretty expensive. And then auto accidents. I mean, on a frequency basis, we do see a lot of auto accidents while the person is driving on company time arising out of or the course of employment. That's the, the terminology we use. Um, and if that's the case, that's a work comp compensable injury. So we see those quite a bit as well. I see. So we've got professional liability, auto liability, abuse and molestation and workers comp. Those are the four four big ones. Do, do you have any others that are those like the ones that like, you know, bottom line, you're going to want to consider? Bottom line, you're going to want to consider those. I strongly urge uh, ABA agencies to look at the cyber liability and data breach as well. 
Uh, and it's kind of the Wild West as far as those coverages are concerned. They're still being developed. Every insurance company has different terms, different coverage forms. Um, but typically, you want those two items on an insurance policy. They're a very good idea to have in place. You're collecting personally identifiable information, uh, HIPAA information, and you're on the line if there's a data breach. Rarely is it going to be the, you know, everybody always says, oh, it's, uh, you know, Central Reach or whoever else stores all that stuff. Well, that's great. And it's all, you know, encrypted and whatnot. But it doesn't absolve you of liability. It's the collector of the information that is responsible ultimately and not the party that's storing the data. I see. Um, one thing I wanted to circle, I want to circle back to workers' comp because I think that's going to come up a couple times here is um, what do you work with companies to address? Uh, you know, let's say you have a company that has a lot of claims for workers' comp. Is, is that something that, that, uh, a group like yourself would work with them with from a behavioral safety standpoint. It's oddly enough, there's a huge behavioral safety um, uh, wing, if you will, or application of behavior analysis. And it's, it, I, I wonder to what extent that's being, if, if we're, you know, taking our own medicine as, as it relates to that, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes at the detriment, I think of the employees because they're, doing everything in their power to protect a child from injuring themselves or something else. And yet the employee gets an injury. So, you know, the de-escalation training is very important. You know, the safety cares of the world and things like that is, uh, is very important to employee training. But yeah, we do work with clients, um, and, uh, even non-clients in some case to address what they're employee training regiment looks like, you know, RBT standards, you know, 40 hours and things like that are very helpful. But again, they often focus on the client facing aspect as opposed to, uh, you know, defensive positions you can take to protect yourself or simply not putting yourself in a position to, to get injured. So yeah, we work on uh, training all the time, everything from defensive driving, um, you know, we, we try to analyze an employer and figure out where their specific claims frequency is coming from and claim severity. And then we dive into uh, operational practices to help them with those things. And we try to provide training materials and support and guidance uh, on an ongoing basis to reduce those frequency and severity of injuries. So most insurance companies, and it's not just me, a lot of brokers out there, a lot of insurance companies have resources for this stuff. It's just a matter of tapping into them. Um, it's like anything else. If you, you don't know what you don't know. So asking those questions of your insurance carrier and getting the, the free employee training videos that they have or having somebody from their loss control team out to your clinic to take a look around, you know, a lot of these services are free to clients and they should be utilized. So asking the right questions, making sure your provider can offer some guidance on that stuff. Uh, it, it's not just me doing it. So there are a lot of people out there. Uh, I think I know what you mean by a loss control team, but could you further define that? Yeah. It, so most insurance companies will have you know safety engineers, if you will, on staff, people that are trained in um, both 
you know, physical safety aspects of your business, you know, making sure you have fire extinguishers in the right place in your office, making sure you have a first aid kit that's appropriately stocked. You know, that's the very simple stuff. But a loss control specialist can also come in and train your staff on how to lift appropriately, um, you know, how to uh, set up a desk ergonomically so they're not receiving those types of injuries. They'll provide information on, you know, defensive driving uh, that should happen or, you know, standards you should have in place for cell phone use while driving in a vehicle. So that's all you know, encompassed with the quote unquote loss control services that an insurance company, anything that's going to reduce the impact of a loss, uh, you know, claim or prevent them from happening at all. Insurance carriers have huge departments focused on these things. I see. Thank you. That's helpful. Hey everyone, as a BCBA, meeting your continuing ed needs can be challenging at times. That's why I have made selected episodes of the Behavioral Observations podcast available for Type 2 continuing education credits. That's right. You can meet a portion of your professional development requirements on the go. Currently, we have CEs for topics including functional assessment, ethics, and supervision. Come learn from podcast favorites such as Greg Hanley, Pat Fryman, Mark Dixon, as well as many other amazing guests. For more information, head on over to behavioralobservations.com forward slash get CEs. One other question I had, Dan, uh, and I think, again, it's something that came up in our previous conversations is uh, sometimes uh, behavior analysts will have kind of like side gigs, if you will, you know, they might work for an agency, but they might do supervision with uh, aspiring behavior analysts uh, and, um, you know, and, and do that on, you know, evenings and weekends or, you know, free time or what have you. And um, I'm wondering what the insurance aspect of that is. Is that something that, um, you know, they should be concerned with getting a, a policy for? Yeah, I we we get the question a lot, and I would say this that you know my client is the agency itself. So my focus is on protecting the agency, and from that standpoint, the best risk management approach is if somebody is going to operate outside of their duties of employment then, you know, and that means those weekends, those outside supervision and things like that, they need to be covered elsewhere for those things. So yes, having your own personal policy that covers you uh, outside of, you know, your specific work duties would be, would be pretty important and I think make a lot of sense. And it's not terribly expensive to do. I mean, CPH and associates will write you an individual policy for, you know, it used to be 150 bucks for a year. It might be a little bit more than that now, but um, you know, it's not bad coverage to get. I see, and it's probably uh, well worth it, I guess, if something uh, something were to happen. Um, yeah, you don't want them coming up after your homeowner's insurance or your renter's insurance or you personally for anything. So uh, I think it's a pretty simple mechanism to you know, have the insurance carrier step up if you had that coverage in place. Okay. I know I would do it. Good to know. Good to know. Um, all right, cool. So as I said earlier, this generated a lot of buzz in the, uh, uh, on some of the Facebook groups. And uh, so I, th- uh, it generated uh, 
some questions here. So let me uh, let me hit you up with some listener questions here. I got some good ones. All right. Great. Uh, Allie uh, writes, and Allie uh, uh, owns an agency here in New Hampshire. Um, she writes in and says, uh, "We recently had trouble with risk pools because insurers don't know how to classify ABA providers." We're not an educational or medical provider, yet we're not mental health. People have asked us for childcare license numbers, medical malpractice, and workman's comp classifications. The overarching question has been, what do you do? This has made it hard for us when determining workman's comp classifications, et cetera. <laughs> you need to keep having those conversations. Uh, I mean, it, it can be difficult, but I would suggest, and this is going to seem self-serving, but you should find a broker that works with other people uh, in your space and has insured other people that you trust. So it is imperative in the insurance world that you have somebody communicating on your behalf to the insurance carriers in an effective means and can explain your business. Um, right away, every insurance carrier's knee-jerk reaction is, no, we don't wanna do that because we don't understand it. And it's the broker's responsibility to, you know, temper down those fears and get the underwriter to really comprehend what the risk is. Uh, it's better if they have a broader understanding of your industry so they can explain, you know, claims trends and where we would expect to see things from and then how those are going to be, uh, uh, what sort of services we're going to provide to, uh, to lessen the impact of any of those claims with you particular as a client. So, it is a difficult space to really describe, and I can understand the issue with risk pools or self-insurance funds or, or anything like that because um, it's the industry is a little immature for those things thus far. Uh, I think it will start heading into a, an environment where you're going to get some large national insurance carriers willing to take a stab at things. But yeah, it, it is very tough to describe. In California, the appropriate work comp class code is 8868 for your employees in the field. And what that translates to is colleges or schools. So it's the same class code they use for teachers at a private school. Well, we all know that's not really the risk profile of, uh, of your RBTs out in the field. But so far, California has said, yep, yeah, well, that's the one we're using for now until a different code is adjusted. So we kind of use that for the basis for codes throughout the, uh, throughout the country, um, but every state is a little bit different with, with what they're willing to do. Okay, and just so we can stay on the same uh, page term-wise, uh, what, what what, what's a layman's definition of risk pool? A risk pool would be like an industry trade group or something like that that has formed an insurance policy or uh, just created an insurance company. Um, they can be done on a state level. They can be done on a national level. And it's where, you know, somebody would put together a group insurance policy that then everybody else could subscribe to uh, that fit within that industry or that trade association. So uh, one exists for ABAI, their professional liability policy through the Huntington uh, broker team. Um, you know, that's technically a, a, a risk pool, I guess. It's a, a master insurance policy created for ABA providers, and then people can just subscribe to it. And 
you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of that particular product, but, um, you know, it's fairly inexpensive. I know that. All right. Got it. Um, Kirsty writes in, um, when running a social skills group in a community setting rented by the hour, what do we need to do to protect ourselves from liability to allow the families of the clients and the families of the, uh, the peer buddies to leave their children with us for a couple of hours? This is a great question. So this kind of gets to the the basis of what we're really trying to do. The the insurance coverage is great, right? Everybody should have it and it'll protect you in the event that you're sued. But the ultimate goal is to prevent a lawsuit in the first place because they suck up time and energy and everything else. So what Kirsty's talking about is, you know, is really what we try to focus on when we're talking with people. You need those appropriate waivers in place from parents. Just a general, you know, liability waiver. You sign them all the time when you go to a kid's birthday party at a at a jumpy house place, you're signing a waiver. People are so familiar with doing it anymore, they really don't even read them. But a well-crafted waiver by essentially everybody that's involved in the situation um would uh, would be a great starting point for the owner, uh, for the agency to have in place. So if the parents are going to leave people there, we always worry about supervision. We want to make sure there are no one-on-one situations um, between a clinician and a child. Uh, you know, other adults present, other kids present, no closed door type operations where there's no video or something like that. So, you know, that's just to prevent the allegation of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but the really, really what I'd suggest is the liability waiver, making sure it's, uh, it's up to snuff, have somebody review it. You know, you can pull one off Google these days, you don't have to pay a bunch of money for it. And, uh, and that'll at least give you a good baseline for things. I see. And then, uh, Janelle wanted to piggyback on that. Uh, she has a question about liability related to a therapist consenting to use their own uh, kids as neurotypical models in social skills groups. That happens you know, certainly uh, to, uh, from time to time. Yeah, so I, I, to be honest with you, I've never seen a lawsuit arise out of anything like this, and that's where we get a lot of our information from. Um, I would think the you know the waiver that you have the other people sign in the social skills group would would absolve you of any sort of liability in the event that your child were to cause injury to somebody else um you know just a good solid waiver in place would probably would probably get you out of any of those situations and if it didn't i would rely on your general liability insurance to uh, to pick up you know if we're talking about injury to another kid or something like that um, you know, a good waiver goes a long way. So if it, if an RBT or a BCBA or someone else is running a social skills group and they say, oh, you know, I've got a kid of the same age uh, and that they want to pull into that because it's clinically appropriate or would be helpful in one way or the other, you'd want that staff member to sign the waiver as well. Is that what I'm hearing or did I? Did yeah, I that, yeah, I think that, no, 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 I think I, you're right on that point. I think that would make a lot of sense to have the staff member, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where if their child were injured, they're then suing their employer because that situation was allowed to happen. Right. Yeah. So you want to have, uh, you want to have a liability waiver from that staff member, uh, in those types of instances. Um, you know, you, you, 
In a lot of cases, as the agency owner, you're probably not going to force that person to use their own child. So if they're electing to do so because it's clinically, you know, appropriate, then, you know, having them sign a waiver that, you know, says, hey, I'm allowing my kid to participate here. I'm aware of the issues and the concerns involved, um, you know, and absolving the employer of any liability with it would make a lot of sense from a risk management standpoint for the organization. Cool. Got it. Uh, Dustin writes, um, can you discuss how to negotiate your rates for both liability and also getting coverage for employees with regard to health and dental insurance? Are there any companies that will offer lower rates for getting it all through them? Um, what are considerate percentages to pay if, you, if you're the employer? And how do you make an attractive healthcare package for employees without it costing them or yourself too much. So there's a lot in that question, and we could take it kind of piece by piece. So maybe for the first is, uh, is, it, is it advantageous to try to group all these different services to, or products together? So you're not going to find an insurance carrier that's going to provide you with the liability insurance and the professional liability insurance and also insure your employees for health and dental. They're two uh, segmented parts of the industry, if you will. So you'll get your employer group health plans through Anthem Blue Cross or Cigna or something like that. But those are not insurance companies in the property casualty space. Those are not insurance companies that offer liability protection to an employer or workers' compensation or anything like that. Um, I always suggest getting as much insurance as you can in one spot, even if it's not for rate negotiation. It can dovetail the coverages very well and protect you in the event that Let's say you buy your professional liability insurance from carrier X and you buy your general liability insurance from carrier Y. If there's a claim that could be in both of those worlds, you're going to get insurance carriers pointing fingers at the other one trying to get out of covering the claim. If you just had one insurance carrier that covered them both, then you would just send it in and, you know, tough. They're going to have to cover it one way or another. Um but it doesn't work like, you know, your homeowners or your auto, where if you have a, a good driver discount or anything like that, that stuff doesn't really exist. As far as the employee health insurance, this is a very competitive space. And what we see is, you know, retention of employees is an issue. Uh, hiring of employees is an issue. Uh, in most areas that we operate in, there are way more caseload than you have RBTs to provide services. So everybody is trying to get and attract talent and keep talent once they have it in the door. So we have certain employers that offer longevity benefits uh, in terms of their employee health insurance. They'll pay more per month for an employee after their one-year anniversary on the job or two-year anniversary. Um, so we do have clients that take those strategies. They become tough to administer, but people do it. Um, but yeah, providing a, a comprehensive set of benefits, a, uh, uh, you know, health insurance, dental vision, maybe some life insurance, um, an employee assistance program. Those are all benefits that are pretty widely used, uh, employee retention measures in the ABA world, as far as we're concerned. As far as contribution levels, uh, it varies pretty wildly. Um, you know, 
in general, the, the minimum percentage you're going to have to contribute on behalf of your employees is 50%. And we have more people that do a lot higher than that than the other way around, if that makes sense. So more people are contributing, say, 80 or 90% of their, of their employee health insurance amount um, than, than providing lower percentages. And, and to get at what you're saying earlier, is it presumably to, to stay competitive and to offer a, a, a well-rounded benefit and compensation it, package? Ex- exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's really, that's really where it's driven. It's all driven by the ability to hire and retain people. And uh, when wages can be pretty competitive out there, um, you know, people tend to focus on the other stuff. Uh, as the employee population ages, um, I would I would expect that those will become even more important things. You know, we don't see a lot of the younger RBTs focus too much on health insurance yet. They don't have kids. They maybe not be married and things like that. But as they step up into their late 20s or early 30s, that's typically when those life events happen. And then uh, all of a sudden their personal health insurance becomes much more vital. Absolutely. You know as well as I do with uh, with a couple of kids the doctor bills can can rack up pretty easily and the health insurance is an important part of things. Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, Dustin has another question and it relates to what you're saying earlier when you brought up daycares um, and so if there was a, uh, a an ABA treatment center that also had a daycare for neurotypical kiddos would you need two different policies? Or could you roll that up into one one particular one plan? I'm paraphrasing his question a little bit for the purpose. Right, of the right, right. You could, in theory, if it's the same business, you could you could roll different you know types of operation into one plan. So if it was the same corporation that operated uh, the daycare and a clinic you shouldn't really have a problem rolling up. It's, it's largely the same coverage items uh, that they need. You know, they need the abuse coverage. They need general liability. They need the work comp. Um, you know, you'd probably add some additional coverage items just to make sure you're protecting, like if a kid is hurt in a, uh, in a daycare setting, we, we place what's called uh, student accident coverage. Um, and it covers accidental death and dismemberment to kids. It's not very expensive, but it's a nice thing to have there and can put parents at ease a little bit, uh, especially if something does happen, uh, you know, God forbid. So you can roll them into the same one. There may be business reasons to have them separated, uh, you know, separate legal entities that need their own profit centers or whatnot, or you need to allocate premium in a certain way, um, or say you don't want you know, an injury that occurs at one place to use up all your insurance limits for the ABA side of the business. Um, so there may be business reasons to uh, to separate them, but largely the same people that are going to underwrite a daycare operation as it stands right now are going to are going to underwrite uh, an ABA business. And are those considerations that you just mentioned? Is that something that the broker works with the agency on figuring out what would be the best fit? Exactly, exactly. And should likely present you with a couple of different options of ways to do it. So you can vet these things, um, you know, from a from a business and operation standpoint to see what makes the most sense for your particular setup. So we're going to be working with one of our clients right now. They told me last week that uh, they're planning on opening up a daycare 
Um, it will operate as a standalone daycare. It may be under the same corporate name, but it's a separate location, its own facility, and really is just going to be a daycare operation from my understanding. So we're going to look at a couple different options of ways to ensure that appropriately. Um, you know, this is a, a, a larger ABA business, you know, a few hundred employees out there. So, um, you know, different risk profile than some of these uh, 10 and 15 person agencies. I see. All right. And uh, Heather uh, asks about the liability associated with transporting clients within the community. So I think we covered the car piece, right? Uh, but certainly therapists in certain situations might be out doing something in the community and it might involve something like walking down the sidewalk, crossing the street and things like that. And, you know, uh, we can imagine perhaps a mishap occurring here and there in these settings. So what about transporting clients, say, uh, outside of a, an automobile setting, whether it's walking around the community, maybe even taking public transportation or, or what have you? So from a from an insurance standpoint, it's not really going to change much. You're, there's no extra coverage that you should really have to buy. If you've got the general liability and things, that will follow you walking around in the streets. So that's really not an issue. What we try to focus on is more on the risk management side and making sure the therapist has been to the park before and knows what to expect at that location at 3 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, and that they're not going into a neighborhood that they shouldn't be in or a park that is going to be filled with, um, you know, corporate events or some other type of gathering. Um, somebody that's familiar with the park and knows that the, uh, that the playground setup is appropriate for what they're trying to do. So you're not just going there and blindsided and, uh, you know, there's a homeless encampment at the park the day that you show up there or something like that that would pose a different set of risks and then force you to change your plans. And then all of a sudden you're in an area you're not familiar with or, or forced to hop back on a bus that uh, maybe isn't taking you to the right spot. So it's really from an awareness standpoint, we talk to clients about social outings and what that should look like. And uh, in a lot of cases, we've even provided a, a playground safety checklist. So they know that they should uh, be looking at certain things before they go out there. From a worker safety standpoint, we want to make sure everybody's appropriately attired to do those things, whatever they're planning on. We have had claims in the past from uh, this lady was wearing heels on a day she was doing a community outing like this and rolled her ankle and busted some number of her toes while chasing down a child. And she was wearing high heels. And I'm Yikes. going – Come on now, like we need to have a little bit more common sense. But when we forget about common sense, we're left with training employees. So it, uh, we went back and talked to everybody about athletic shoes and what it should look like and all of this stuff. So it, uh, it happens. Yeah, sure. You know, I see it a lot with like folks wearing flip flops and things like that. And I remember when yeah. I used to work for a residential company, you know, it was like, one must have closed toed shoes, you know, and uh, we would uh, have everyone, you know, it took someone only once or twice to, you know, get sent home yeah. to get something different to wear because um, we were worried about folks getting their, their, you know, their feet stepped on and toes broken and things like that. 
Exactly. Exactly. Something else we worry about are um, dogs in parks and on other outings. We've had a couple of people that have had a please get bitten or chased down by, you know, the occasional rogue Rottweiler or whatever it is. So we went as far as providing one of our clients with uh, with company branded whistles for all of their people going out in certain locations uh, and found that the whistles were enough to scare the dogs away uh, in the event that it happened. Yeah. So it really, you know, thinking a little bit outside of the box, but that came about by looking at, you know, loss history and seeing that, you know, we've got three or four dog bites or injuries resulting from being chased by dogs in a certain area. And we were kind of told like, look, we can't go to a different park. That's the only one there. It's supposed to be safer or whatnot. That's where they're comfortable. So we had to figure out another way to go about it. So, you know, that, uh, that helped. I think it reduced the number of incidents. I think the next, uh, six months after that, we only had one and then, uh, and then it's kind of been steady since then. So you never know. It's a wow. cheap fix too. Totally. Were these just like regular whistles? Like they were yeah, just, special or just anything? regular, regular whistles. And it also made the other employees that were maybe in bad neighborhoods late at night, made them feel safer, uh, getting out of their vehicles. Um, we have had two separate carjackings, um, in different neighborhoods. Uh, we had a, uh, we had an employee at one of my clients get shot at when they were robbed. So, you know, we talk a lot about the employee safety side of stuff when you're, you know, you're working late into the evening at somebody's home after school hours and it's dark outside in the winter and they've got to, you know, walk half a block to get to their vehicle. This happens more in urban areas than other where, but than other places, but it, it does happen. And, uh, you know, you get the employee that's carrying an iPad or has a bag and a purse and, you know, toys and other things that they're carrying and, you know, there's nothing they can do. So we talk about, you know, making sure you park close, taking the extra lap around the block and waiting for a parking space to open up that's closer to where you're going. Um, but the whistles, again, in that event, uh, seem to help a little bit. Amazing. That's, that's, uh, it's, it's crazy. Um, and I, um, are there other kind of general risk management things that you've worked with companies on? And I, these stories are oddly fascinating. Obviously it's, it's, it's terrible that, you know, people are getting cart, you know, been carjacked and things like that, but just with that and the dogs and, you know, the shoes and whatnot, for some reason, or other, again, it does remind me of that, that, you know, one of those, those commercials. What, what, so what are the, what are some other, um, either unusual or, or even commonly occurring things that you've done some, uh, analysis of to help your clients? Yeah. So, you know, based on the injuries to employees that we've seen, um, and again, in most places, workers' compensation, your work comp costs are going to be, you know, a multiple of your other insurance costs on the property casualty side. So whereas your professional liability insurance might be a thousand dollars for the year, your workers' compensation is going to be 10 or $15,000 for the year in a lot of cases. Maybe not in New Hampshire where things are a little cheaper. In California, uh, that's definitely the case. We have clients that you know pay you know, half a million dollars a year in workers' compensation premiums, and their professional liability coverage is $40,000. So 
it's, uh, you know, when we focus on that aspect of it, what we're really trying to do is uh, prevent employee injuries, to have a better safety record, to get lower premiums. So we talk a lot about intake procedures. Um, when you're signing up a new client and going to be sending somebody to their homes, what, what sort of questions are you asking about that home environment? Um, you know, some of the best approaches we've seen, is a BCBA will go out and actually inspect the facility ahead of somebody going there. But, you know, we ask a lot of these questions on our risk assessment. Are you asking about weapons in the home? Um, are you asking about housekeeping uh, and, and what the, the layout is? Are you asking about pets in the home? So you're not sending an RBT that's allergic to dogs to a house with five dogs. Um, are you asking about other family members in the home? Because we have had people that get intimidated by, uh, by other family members who are around. And most people are very tight on their clinical checklists ahead of sending somebody out. But we don't find that a lot of, especially the younger agencies, are asking all of the other questions that we think that they should ask. You and need to be able to pair that appropriate RBT with the appropriate clinical case. Um, and part of that discussion for us is what does that home environment look like? And do you have a standard checklist that you go by or do you kind of customize it based on the setting or um, is there just a general template you work off of? So our, our, what we do a lot is review the checklist that people are currently using and then we'll offer suggestions and modifications. Um, we, we get into a lot of trouble if we provide too many documents, um, but I'm more than happy to pretend I'm an attorney and review things for people uh, and offer suggestions and guidance. So um, – we take it more from that standpoint. And one, you know, version of my future, I would like to be able to provide some more documentation to folks. But uh, when it comes to their intake and, and clinical procedures and things, we review a lot of parent handbooks. We review a lot of, uh, of clinic handbooks. Um, and we're more just making sure they have the appropriate items in there. And we will amend or offer amendments for certain items that we see as deficient. Um, but the intake process, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an important aspect of everybody's business. And, you know, we'd, uh, we'd like to see it tightened up a little bit. We've had employees that, you know, you, you have an employee that you has a known back injury or a knee issue, and they get sent out to somebody's walk up that has two or three flights of stairs and no elevator. And it's like, <laughs> you can't be doing that. Let's send a different RBT to work with that kid. Um, or we're just, we know we're going to have an injury and we know we're going to have a work comp claim. So that makes a lot of sense from where I'm sitting. So, <laughs> um, Dan, this has been really fascinating. Uh, and, uh, surprisingly so, as I mentioned earlier, um, if people want to get in touch with you and have more questions about this, I know I'm going to get a ton of questions and I'm going to, Send people to uh, the Liberty Law, uh, excuse me, LibertyCompany.com, and you set up a, a a page just about ABA services. So it's LibertyCompany.com forward slash podcast. Um, people can uh, check out what you do there. Um, but if people have questions and things like that, what's the best way to reach you? They can reach me. Uh, email is D L A W D Law at Liberty Company, all spelled out. dot com. And uh, 
a lot of what I do is just field questions from folks and try to provide some guidance and direction on things. So um, I think like most people that are, you know, agency owners in this space, they want to see it, the level of professionalism kicked up a notch or the, uh, the way things are, are handled just, um, you know, improved upon a bit. And I've kind of tried to do as much of that from an outsider as I can. So uh, the more we can help people with their forms, with their intake processes, with their parent handbooks, with general risk management, I will provide you any and all information that I can, whether you're a client or not, just trying to uh, assist you through things. So, um, but talk to your broker, make sure your broker knows what they understand, what your business is. You know, we get that a lot that they have to re-explain things quite a bit. Um, but, uh, make sure you're getting the guidance that you need on stuff. Great. Great. Well, thanks for taking time out of your day to educate us on this really important topic. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, there you have it. Big thanks to Dan for joining us today. You can check out more info, as he said, at their website at libertycompany.com. And all their ABA-related services are at forward slash podcast. That's libertycompany.com forward slash podcast. And uh, just to be completely transparent here, um, they are not a sponsor of the show. He just set up that landing page so it would be a convenient place for folks to find information about what they do and how they serve the ABA community. So I just wanted to be clear about that. I forgot to mention that in the introductory comments. So anywho, um, I will have links to everything we talked about here uh, at behavioralobservations.com, session 48. And having said that, that's all I have for today. I will see you in session 49. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast.